I'm Bob West, Director of Operations, and I welcome you tonight to our annual John Hubbard Sturgis Eaton Endowed Lecture. Before I introduce our speaker, I would like to ask uh, Isabel Black uh, to come up and say a few words. Thank you, Bob. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Isabel Black, and I would like to wel welcome you to the ninth annual John Hubbard Sturgis Eaton Lecture, which my husband Scott so generously endowed into perpetuity in memory of my dear father. My father would be very pleased and proud of his two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Julia, who has already developed a real passion for paintings, particularly 19th and 20th century art, <laughs> which mostly her father Scott has cultivated. Likewise, my parents attempted to instill in my sister and me an early, at an early age an appreciation of art, architecture, and gardens by taking us on numerous trips to France and Italy. My father preferred to travel in the off-season and sought out unusual destinations. In Venice, I distinctly remember staying at a pensione with a rooftop cafe, which both writers and artists frequented, and visiting uh, some of his co old college friends. Most likely, he loved Venice for its emotional qualities of dazzling, shimmering light and magical palazzi, which Monet rendered so splendidly in his paintings. I recollect as a toddler habitually running ahead of my parents, just like Julia does today, in the rooms of the Doge's palace, patiently waiting for them at the very end of the exhibition halls when they had feared that I had gotten lost. In Tuscany, I recall vacationing in historic villa accommodations in Fiesole, nestled in the hills above Florence with panoramic views overlooking that treasured city. From that viewpoint, Florence always appeared tranquil and spiritual, rather than filled with its bustling activity. As a family, we took day trips to the surrounding Tuscan towns, such as to the northeast of Florence, Settignano, Maiano, and Vallambrosia, and uh, viewed uh, villas, gardens, churches, and museums. In particular, we journeyed to Cernotoyo to find the villa of our cousins, the Boyd family, who had hosted uh, their friend, the distinguished author Henry James, among many other uh, guests. I visually remember my father escorting us to Itati and photographing us with his old fashioned Kodak camera with its dark brown leather case. Pertinent to tonight's lecture, my father particularly fancied the Bodicelli masterpiece La Primavera. I recall a poster of the work which he mounted inside his closet at a weekend apartment we rented on an Austrian lake. As I contemplate this mysterious work, I wonder if my father admired it for its graceful beauty its diaphanous veils, or its dance-like poses. Perhaps it was its universal theme, an allegory of spring and the rebirth of nature, which he admired. Throughout his life, my father greatly fancied the melodious quality of the Italian language and strived to improve his Italian 
by listening to Italian language learning tapes. He was a devotee of fine Italian cuisine and wine with a particular fondness for super inglese desserts. In his later years, he had always hoped to return to Italy. While his parents had wintered in Rome, as far as I could remember, uh, he may have favored Venice and Florence. It is with great pleasure that I uh, turn the podium back to Bob West, the Director of Operations, and hope that you enjoy tonight's lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel and Scott, for your generous support of the Athenaeum. Our speaker tonight is European art expert David Durbin Nolta. David received a BA from the University of Michigan, an MA from the University of Chicago, and a PhD from Yale. He is currently professor of art history at Mass College of Art and Design. He has held a Cress, Fulbright, and Mellon Fellowship and lectured on Caravaggio at the Metropolitan Museum and the MFA. A two-time fellow of Addingham, he has appeared on the Today Show and Dateline discussing Leonardo and published many articles on the history of European culture. His curatorial work includes Florence and Beyond for the Social Art Center. Last year, he completed a collaborative textbook with sculptor Charles Stigliano. Tonight, David will present on the concept of reflectivity as it recurs in Italian painting from the 15th through the 18th centuries. Please join me in welcoming David Durbin Nolta. Thank you. Thank you. Can you, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I am so honored to be here. This is my kind of place. Um, what I, my, my, the way I want to thank you is to express my hope that, you, that none of you here this evening uh, ever has, at least not tonight, ever has to see anything as horrible as I saw when I got up this morning and looked in my mirror. Uh, it, what I saw was a cranky old jet-lagged school teacher with a cold. And the reason I love this place is because I was put in there because I got here early and I was put in this beautiful alcove room and I blew my nose and someone came and set up this screen. That's my kind of place where you, where you blow your nose and they put up a screen. That's what I'm looking for. And books. I like books too. Anyway, thank you so much. I'd like to thank the sponsors, obviously, the Blacks and um, the, um, uh, my, that beautiful introduction. I'm here talking about funny mirrors, in fact. I mean, because as I say, this morning I had this moment where I thought, that can't be me. It's got to be the mirror. Uh, and, so, and so what I'm going to be talking about is sort of funny mirrors and the way that, m not necessarily that mirrors appear in pictures. That's something that's much discussed and much um, investigated in the history of art. Um, the presence of actual literal mirrors in pictures. That's not what I'll be talking about. That's a, a really a, a wonderful topic in its, on its own, but it's not my topic tonight. My topic is going to be the notion of mirroring or the, or the rep repetition of poses, for example, or the repetition of figures within individual images. And what the... Oh, I, well, this is supposedly... Oh, wait. <laughs> this didn't just grow out of my head. This is a new... <laughs> You were also kind not to mention that strange thing. Can, 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 okay, now can you hear me a little better? So I don't know how to handle this. I've never had this type before. I, I don't think you're supposed to put it actually inside your mouth. <laughs> I, think it's, it's, I think it's electrified. So, can, can you hear me now? 
Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay, so uh, as I say, what I'm going to talk about is the repetition of poses and the effects of repetition as a narrative technique. In, and I'm going to focus on two artists in particular, one, uh, both Italian painters, one from the Renaissance, one from the Baroque period, one the founder of the Baroque period, that, uh, the Baroque movement, that is uh, Caravaggio, the most popular now. It just turns out that he's now the most popular artist in the West, according to the New York Times survey, and you know that's true. Um, he, he has superseded Michelangelo and Leonardo, and, and Dan Brown is probably, sp probably spitting furiously because, you know, Caravaggio is really the most popular artist in the history of Western art now, among, among, living, um, among living art lovers. But I'm going to be talking about uh, other artists as well, but I want to focus on, on, on Botticelli, actually three artists, Botticelli, Piero della Francesca, and Caravaggio. Now, to, in order to introduce the topic, I want to remind you that the long history of Italian painting, uh, which goes back, obviously, to uh, the classical period, uh, especially um, fresco decorations which survive, which show us that the Romans were great lovers of paint and paint decoration. But the long history of, of Western painting um, uh, was superseded to some extent. The traditions of the Romans were superseded by the Byzantine style. That's the way to put it. So I'm showing you now one of the earliest masters of the revived art of painting at the end of the Middle Ages. He's technically the artist you're seeing on the screen, Cimabue. Um, this is his uh, a great Madonna and Child triptych. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, it's a Madonna and Child tick. It's a Madonna and Child painting. Enormous picture in the Louvre, and it was painted by Cimabue for the Church of San Francesco in, uh, in Florence, no, in Pisa, in Pisa, and it was painted about 1280, and it gives us uh, a, a pretty nice idea of the thousand-year-old tradition of the repetition of pose in Italian painting. So it's a Byzantine-style work, even though it's a painting, and paintings, freestanding paintings, portable paintings, were fairly new at the beginning of the uh, be at the beginning of the 14th, at the end of the 13th century, as I say, this is 1280. Nevertheless, the Byzantine style is still in control of the actual style. So the Byzantine style, when I say that, I mean mosaic style, the style of mosaic decoration in the great churches of the Byzantine capitals of, uh, of, of Europe, that would be Venice and, and Ravenna, for example, as well as in Greece and in what is now Turkey. And when I say the Byzantine style, I say there's an absolute symmetry. That's what Byzantine artists are almost always looking for. So you've got the Madonna and Child. Uh, they're fairly static, fairly flat figures. You can see that. They almost look like paper cutouts. They're shown almost invariably against a gold ground. That's repeated from the gold ground mosaic technique that predominated throughout the entire thousand-year Byzantine era, you can say. Um, and then the angels on either side, they wear the same basic costumes. When you have one on the right, the same uh, on the left wears the same costume. The angel on the left wears the same costume. However, for all this, what, the seeming strictness of the symmetry, uh, and here's a better uh, term, a better picture in terms of color. I took this a few, a couple months ago at the Louvre. It gives you a better idea of how it would have been seen from below, so it's not straight on. It would have been seen hanging high up in a church over the high altar in the crossing of this church of San Francesco in Pisa. And you also see um, this, the, the, uh, 
the, the details that reveal that it isn't as strict a symmetry as we assume. There's a little tiny suggestion, so I'll show you what I mean. So here's one angel, at the low, this is the lowermost angel on the left, and here's the lowermost angel on the right. They seem obviously to be twins, the facial expressions, the facial features, the costumes, and the and, the, and the, we can't call them the motions in Byzantine art. We can say the poses are almost exactly mirrors, mirrors of each other. And yet, you look at the details and you see there are two fingers on this side, three fingers on this side. So this, the symmetry is not absolute, even in things like the shoes of that same angel. Here's the left angel uh, with the shoe of the left angel, and here's the shoe of the right angel. And they're not exactly the same. You can see that when you flip over the, uh, the image on the left. So this absolute symmetry, what's the point of it in narrative terms? What is absolute symmetry meant to reveal about what you're looking at, the subject of the picture, the Madonna and child? Well, one of the things that Byzantine artists are always striving for, and this is the main criterion against which Byzantine art is judged, is the creation of an otherworldly perfection. So absolute symmetry, uh, which uh, 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 in narrative terms is actually anti-narrative. It seems to destroy any possibility of narrative. Absolute symmetry is the stoppage of time, and narrative, of course, is the record of the passage of time. So the little details that you find when, these, when we don't have absolute symmetry, like we just saw in those, in those um, hands, for example, that all of the suggestion of motion is relegated. All the suggestion of difference, all the suggestion of the possibility of time is relegated to these tiny details. And it's interesting because people always assume that Byzantine uh, stasis, Byzantine anti-narrative um, is, 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 is their highest goal. In fact, it's not until the Renaissance, the Renaissance proper, that we find artists doing very interesting things by repeating poses and even literally reusing the same contours of figures and repeating them in the same image. Now, I think I've been fairly scattered, so I'm going to take a pause. You have nothing to be afraid of in this lecture unless I forget to turn the microphone off before I sneeze. Then you should be afraid of that. So I'm going to turn to one of the three artists I said I'd like to focus on above all in this talk, and that is Botticelli. Here are four scenes by Botticelli, scenes from the life of St. Zenobius. St. Zenobius was a fifth century bishop of Florence, and these were probably, two of these are in London, the top two. Uh, the third uh, on your way down is in New York at the Metropolitan, and this is in the museum in Dresden. And they were probably, in this, imagine a world where Botticelli is decorating your furniture. These were probably chair backs for a confraternity. They're not parts of an altarpiece or anything. They were probably like the way you go to um, uh, Crate and Barrel and pick out a patio bench. These, you could have had Botticelli do your patio bench back in the Renaissance. Good times, good times. So these are from about 1505. And I want to focus on the first scene, the first scene in terms of the chronology. These are several episodes. Each, in fact, each panel represents more than one episode in the life of St. Zenobius. And Botticelli's rather old-fashioned. It doesn't bother him, even in 1505, even after he's had the experience, which wasn't good for Botticelli, of working alongside Leonardo da Vinci in the workshop of Andrea del Verrocchio. They did not get along. Um, and even though the High Renaissance is in full bloom in 1510, 1505, when these were painted, um, Botticelli is old-fashioned. He shows the same figure more than once in the same scene. And here's St. Zenobius. Uh, St. Zenobius on the left this is the opening of these four narratives, narrative scenes. St. Zenobius on the left, and he's rejecting his bride. He's not going to marry a woman. He's going to marry God. 
He's going to become a good, he's going to become a priest. And so you've got this wonderful repetition of the figure. It's not mirroring specifically, although the legs do seem almost to mirror, especially the legs to the lower left. And then he moves from there and he's baptized. I was wondering when I looked at this again today when I was getting ready, how many, uh, um, Jerry Springer could have done a whole week of episodes in the early, if he had been alive in the early Christian period, on mothers trying to get their sons to convert to Christianity. Would have been a special week. Um, but this, but this is a reversal of that of that motif. This is a scene. This is a story. The story of Saint Zenobius. He decides he's not going to get married. He turns around and he decides to get baptized, and then he convinces his mother to get baptized. So you've got lots of interesting things going on and not so, not so uh, t uh, typical things going on in terms of narrative in this. And I want to just show you here this standard flip around, which I wouldn't call specifically a mirroring, though the figure clearly from the costume and even from the extension of one leg uh, 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 in either representation of the figure, there is the suggestion of a mirroring. But this is a standard early Renaissance, early 15th century, early uh, Renaissance 15th century motif. You see it everywhere, a figure shown from two different angles, so we see it here in the, in really the person who best understands Giotto, even though Giotto's been dead a hundred years, in the 1420s, along comes this wonderful artist, Masaccio. He's a Florentine. He only lives to be about 27 years old. But in that brief life that he has, in that very brief career that he has, he re renews the lessons of Giotto. And, and, and he's really partly, he's mainly responsible for the Renaissance in painting in the 15th century. And so here is Masaccio's tribute money at, uh, Santa Maria del, del Carmine in Florence, the Brancacci Chapel, and there is a tax collector asking Jesus for money in the center of the picture. You see the tax collector from the back, and you see him from the front. This is a standard motif in early Renaissance painting. When I say early Renaissance, again, I mean Quattrocento or 15th century painting. What does it mean? It means that even though there's no break, so we don't have the scene broken up into, into, um, into separate separate. Um, panels, or in this case fresco, fresco scenes, what it means is that Masaccio, one of the great things that is being revived in the Renaissance, as you all know, is naturalism. And there is no naturalism, there is nothing natural without movement. So how does an artist, it's the great challenge for Masaccio, as it has been a great challenge for so many artists, at least well into the modern era, throughout the history of art, um, the great challenge, how do you tell a story? How do you tell a story? How do you suggest movement in a static medium? Well, you can do it the way Masaccio does it. You can show the figure from the, from the back and the same figure, and we know it's the same person because he's got his um, same exact costume, and you see him from the back and you see him from the front, and the, and, and the implication, the subliminal message is that the figure has revolved in space, right? That's fairly, fairly straightforward, and that revolution takes time. So we have a static work of art. Nevertheless, we have the representation of the passage of time, so it's a miracle. Okay, and so that's all that I think Botticelli is doing here. I wouldn't call this a mirroring. The strange mirroring comes when we see the two images of the son, Zenobius himself being baptized, followed um, by the representation of the baptism of his mother. And his mother looks exactly like he does. So there's a genetic link, obviously. Well, no, there's obviously a genetic link. Now, now Botticelli would not have said, oh, yes, it's a genetic link. Haven't you had biochemistry? He wouldn't have said that because there was no biochemistry at that time. And the only slight hints of biochemistry were being done by his rival, whom he did not like, um, uh, Leonardo. So there's no possibility, this is not a scientific thing, but it's an interesting, interesting mirroring of the same basic pose 
and it, and the, and one of the narrative one of the narrative messages is of the familial link between the two. That's so straightforward. So then when we turn to someone who is the contemporary of Botticelli, another Tuscan artist born in Borgo San Sepolcro, but working mainly outside of Florence, working mainly in Arezzo, which is where we are here, we turn to Piero della Francesca. This is his high altar fresco cycle, um, the cycle of the true cross, the main character in this wonderful 2,000-year story that's being told in these separate frescoed scenes. The main character is the cross. It's the wood. It's, it's the wood of the tree that grows out of Adam's mouth when, he, when he's buried by his sons uh, in the beginning of human history, and then this tree grows and it's cut down, and then it's, it's used as a bridge, as we'll see in a moment, and then it's reused as the cross, and Christ is crucified on it, and then it's hidden again, and then it's rediscovered. It's a long and interesting story, and fascinating that, trust me, um, and, and, and fascinating is the, uh, the way the eye is meant, made to jump around. It doesn't, it's not like a jotesque cycle, like the Arena Chapel in Padua, where you start here, and then you just make a circle, and you go around that way, or you spiral downward. It starts in the upper right lunette, and then it goes down here, and then it jumps across here, and then it goes up again. So it's a very strange, whoops, it's a very strange um, uh, narrative line, uh, which, uh, again, is a way that the artist traps the eye. It's the confusion that, is, that works for an artist, because if you have to follow a story which is more complex, most people aren't used to following the story of a piece of wood rather than a, a hero or heroine or et cetera, et cetera. It's not the story of Jesus so much as the wood that he's crucified on, so you are kind of trapped. Every good work of art is a trap, of course. And this high altar of San Francesco in, uh, in, uh, in Arezzo decorated beginning around 1452 by Piero, this is definitely one of those great traps for the eye where you get caught in a story which is complex and one of the most fascinating things about it is that even though you, there's not a simple narrative line like a circle or a spiral that takes us from one incident to the next, you do have, and this is the point of the confusion, you do have images that typologically reflect other images. So the, I can't really quite get my stick up high enough, this sounds terrible. But you see, the second, the first rectangle on the right and the first rectangle on the left, even though they are facing each other, they have nothing to do with each other in terms of chronology, the chronology of the story that begins with Adam and ends in the fourth century with the return of the cross to the Holy Land. Nevertheless, they are reflecting each other. The one on the, on the right is the story of the Queen of Sheba, who comes from uh, her wealthy kingdom to visit Solomon. She's heard these rumors about Solomon. Now, every reading of this fresco cycle always says, oh, she comes because she's fascinated by his, by his brains, and she's heard he's the wisest person in the world, and who wouldn't want to go meet the wisest person in the world? Uh, that's the standard reading. And so here she is, and she's about to cross into the palace, but she stops by a stream, and on the stream there's this log. You're supposed to step on the log to get over the stream, but there's something about this log. Well, it's, it's going to be 900 years later. It's going to be that log that's used to make the cross that Christ is crucified on. So, but she has an inkling. She has a premonition. So she stops and she says, a, she says a prayer and then she goes in. And so, and this scene, the woman kneeling before the wood that will become the true cross mirrors the opposite scene, which happens 1,200 or 1,300 years later, when another of those mothers who really wants her son to become a Christian, Helen, St. Helen, she has a son who's the emperor of the world, uh, Constantine, and after he becomes emperor, thanks to his finally listening to his mother, 
and, and using the cross in battle against Maxentius, that's what allows Constantine to take over the Roman world, then she goes and he says, okay, mother, you were right, you were right, I'm now with Jesus. And so then she runs off, that's her first duty, to run off to the Holy Land, now that her, her son is the emperor, and she goes and she looks for the true cross. Well, the first two they find, those aren't it. But the third one brings back to life a, a dead man who's being carried in his funeral procession, and they tap him on the head with a cross, and he comes back to life. Clearly, that's a very important piece of wood. And so here's Helen, here's Helen adoring it. Now, they're not exactly the same woman, right? One is Helen, the mother of Constantine the emperor. One is the queen of Sheba, who's on her way to visit King Solomon. Nevertheless, their postures and what they're actually doing in narrative terms, they're both doing the same thing, 1,200 years apart. That's simply a type of repetition, the way that Moses is the typological forebear of Jesus, for example, in the Sistine Chapel or in the, um, in the beautiful Scuola di San Rocco in Florence. Moses and Jesus are often, their lives are meant to mirror each other, if you know what's going on. Right? So I'm not saying that they're exactly the same, but they're doing the same thing. They're assuming the same posture. Much more interesting in Piero, however, here they are. There's the Queen of Sheba on the left and Constantine's mother, Helen, on the right. Much more interesting, however, is, and people have always noticed this, that for the scene of the Queen of Sheba arriving to visit the king, uh, king of, of the Israelites, Solomon, they, Piero has used the exact same cartoon. So he's used the exact same cartoon for the central group of the Queen of Sheba, and then he's just flipped it over. A cartoon, as you know, is a punctured piece of paper, and if you flip it over, you can use it and have the exact same image in reverse, or you can use it more than once. So what you do is you prick out the holes, it's literally called pricking, you prick out the holes and then you take charcoal, you put it against your panel or your fresco, or the surface you're going to fresco, you take charcoal and you bang a bag against it and you have the outlines of your drawing and then you take the drawing away. You can use the drawing again and Piero does, but he flips it over. So why is he doing this? The Byzantines never were so strict about their symmetry. You can see he's not just done it for the queen of Sheba, but he's done it for her attendants as well. You can see here the colors of their costumes are different, but this is a simple fact. He has used the cartoon once on the left of the, of the image, and he's flipped it over on the right. So what you have here is you have the Queen of Sheba. Um, she, too, has been, her cartoon has been flipped over. It's exactly the same in a way that no Byzantine work ever was. Now, why is this? Why is he doing that? Well, as I say, the standard reading of the story is that the Queen of Sheba is fascinated by the tales she's heard of, um, of this very wise man, Solomon, so she's going to see him. But that's not what the Bible actually says. By the way, if you ever want to clear out uh, an entire car of the tea, just get on and open this book the Holy Bible, and then suddenly you're all, suddenly you're all alone. So I'm going to just read you what it says, though. I'll, I'll summarize it. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when they were done... They say, she says, when they had their conversation, and then at the end, she was, when she was so impressed with everything that he said and did, she was, it was clear to her that he was the wisest. And then she, and then there was no more spirit in her. She lost her spirit. My reading of the story from the Bible, it's not that the Queen of Sheba is just attracted by this wise man, but it seems to me one possibility is that she is going to test him, that her, her methods and her motives, more than her methods, are a little bit suspicious. She wants to 
find out his secret. But what happens is, through the mirror of the, what we have to call now the mirror of that sacred wood, she confronts not Solomon, who's to the right, she confronts herself. The point of the, of the symmetry then, the point of the absolute symmetry, is that the, for Piero, the identification of the person has to be the same, by which I mean, I'm, I'm making this more complicated than it needs to be, he, she has to be the exact same person because that's the person that she's looking at in the picture. What she confronts when she visits Solomon, for all of his wisdom, what she confronts is herself. And this is a standard Christian idea that the greatest wisdom is the love of God. But wisdom begins begins with an examination of yourself. And so Piero is making this point fairly emphatically. It has to be the exact same person, unlike the angels surrounding the virgin and uh, child in a Byzantine work. Here's another work by Piero in which he does the same exact thing. This is the... Um, Madonna del Parto, the Madonna of birth or childbirth. And it's in the cemetery still in Monterchia. Can't leave the cemetery because the people of Monterchia are afraid that if they ever lent it to a show, for example, uh, if, any, if any of the women who are pregnant in the town at that time had any kind of problem with their pregnancy, they, they would be, it would be blamed on the town for letting the picture out of, out of, out of, its, out of its domain. So this is a problem. They've actually tried to borrow this picture. So, and here again, we have this uh, Piero using the same silhouette, the same cartoon and repeating it from the left to the right. He's pretty much the only artist who does this. And here, of course, the point is absolute symmetry, stasis, the eternity of the bringing into the world of Christ, which is not just something that happened in the past, if you are a Christian. It's something that is happening constantly in all lives all the time. So the point there, I think, it seems to me, is absolute symmetry again, the kind of symmetry that you don't see in Byzantine art, for all that it's famous for its symmetry. Another artist who does this, exactly contemporary, this is the 1480s, we were just looking at the 1460s. Um, this is um, a wonderful, this is the Galitzin triptych in, uh, in Washington, D.C., in the National Gallery. It's a work by Perugino, another fellow pupil, with um, Botticelli and Leonardo in the workshop of Verrocchio. He was a little more advanced than they were, but he was there nevertheless. And here we we have a fascinating triptych, as you see, and on the left we have Saint Jerome and Mary, uh, the Virgin. I'm sorry, Mary, the Mother of God, Mother of Christ, and then in the center, the pivot of the picture, as he always is, whenever he's represented throughout the history of Western art, um, he's the pivot of the world, not just the pivot of the scene. And so we have jo Jerome and Mary, his mother, and then Jesus on the cross, and then on the right we have John, the uh, the young beloved Apostle John, the writer of the Gospel of John, and then beyond, on the hillside, we have Mary Magdalene. And you'll notice, it's been argued, and I'm not positive that I agree, but it's been argued. I know, for example, the hands are different, but there is, it's been argued that, as in Piero, this is a specific rep rep repetition. I'll slow down. This is a specific repetition of the, at least the outer contours of the figure. And I thought, well, what does that mean in narrative terms? It is a mirroring, and in this case, it's a mirroring uh, of, of a female and a male, or a male and a female. And there is a reason for doing that. This was in a Dominican church, and one of the most popular, um, uh, one of the most popular verses you could say one of the most popular Christian verses or scriptural verses among the Dominicans is what is arguably the most radical idea that comes with Christianity. And it's the line of St. Paul that um, he says in Galatians, he says there is, because of Jesus, right, because of Jesus and his sacrifice, there is no longer 
uh, Greek or Jew, Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. So this isn't just to taunt us with the effeminacy of a young St. John. He's always young and effeminate in all images of the Last Supper and the crucifixion in which he appears. But this is, I think, making a narrative point that you see these two figures are not in any way alike physically. They don't mirror each other in their postures. These two decidedly do. So you see, if, as we tend in the West to read from left to right, if you read this picture from left to right, something's happened. The cross has changed the organization and the hierarchy. In fact, it has destroyed the hierarchy of the world. And the male and the female are the same. It seems to me that, that that's at least a, 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 a reading we could entertain. Here's Piero again. And of course, sometimes things don't mirror each other in Piero. And of course, that, then another point is clearly being made. This is Piero's very famous resurrection of Jesus. And again, reading from left to the right, this is a picture which you couldn't be more static. I mean, if Piero appears, art often approaches sculpture, and nowhere more so than in his resurrection. This is a, a resurrection in which Jesus is like a sculpture of a figure emerging from a tomb. There's a kind of a paleness to the uh, marmorial treatment of the body, uh, the figures of the soldiers who have fallen asleep in the, in the, in the, in the lower zone. They're solid there, because uh, his, his greatest love was perspective. He wrote treatises on perspective, Piero did. So you have this real sculptural, but then for that very reason, somewhat immobile composition of figures. And yet when we bring, our, bring the time to the picture, when our eye goes over the picture from left to right, uh, we pass through the pivot of the resurrected Christ. And you see the world is not mirrored the left on the right. We don't expect a landscape to look dramatically different from, from uh, behind a person. As you see here, it's winter on the left and it's spring on the right. And that's the point, that they don't mirror is the point which is the opposite of these, as we just saw in, in, uh, in uh, Piero. Oops, I've got to go faster, and here I go. But I really wanted to talk about, my favorite thing to talk about, which is Caravaggio. I'm not going to talk about Caravaggio's use of mirrors, because we know he did use them. Um, or his, uh, for example, this is a, a, the work called Narcissus, which some people do not accept as being by Caravaggio. I do. But this is, represents a boy looking into the mirror. If it is by Caravaggio, it would be a clear indication of his interest in reflectivity. But we know from other pictures, which are generally or universally accepted as by Caravaggio, for example, in this, the conversion of the Magdalene in Detroit, we know that Caravaggio was not only interested in mirrors, he was interested in representing them, and not just your average mirrors, but convex mirrors. So here, the conversion of Mary Magdalene, she's talking to her sister Martha, this is a conflation of various characters from the Bible, but Mary Magdalene in this image, in this version of, the, of, of a story of the Magdalene, um, is Confront, has confronted herself in the same way that the Queen of Sheba has confronted herself in the, in the uh, work we looked at from Arezzo. Uh, we don't see her reflected in the mirror, but we can see that a mirror is an integral part of the story. Self-reflection or self-examination are the implication, the narrative implication of the presence of this mirror. And Caravaggio was not the first person to represent or be interested in convex mirrors. The most famous example was from the, well, people call it a mannerist work, but the, but the young artist, I say young, he was only in his 20s when Parmigianino painted this famous uh, self-portrait in a convex mirror. It's actually painted on a convex surface. So what he was looking into, he reproduces uh, literally uh, in the support for the, for the picture. You really see the curvature there. Now, what's fascinating is the picture I opened with, Caravaggio's 
um, Medusa, head of Medusa, by many people, it's believed to be a self-portrait of Caravaggio. And also scholars have said that even though it is actually painted on an, an early, it's a found object, the frame, the, the format of the picture, the actual support for the picture, is an old shield, and it's slightly convex. But, as scholars have argued, and I totally agree, it's actually represented, the head of Medusa, probably a self-portrait, has been represented as though it were in a concave frame or a concave um, kind of dish. And that's interesting because it has narrative implications. The narrative implications of this are that when you see something in a concave, in a concave glass, I was going to bring one in, but it seemed a little show and telly. Um, and I don't really have a good one. When you see something in a con, and, and artists already understood this since Leonardo, I'll show you a couple examples of Leonardo's machines for making convex mirrors in a moment, but this is the, the simple visual phenomenon. If, a con, if you have a concave glass or mirror, and, it, and if you stand far enough back that you have gone beyond half of the radius of the circle implied by the concave, does everyone get that so far? because it takes me a while to get my mind around it. And, if, and so, so if you're beyond half of the radius, then you, the picture, the image is inverted. So here's a little kid, this reminds me of the Medusa, a little kid looking at a great convex mirror, and you see this wonderful tendency. You can see he's, he's, he, the reflection is, is um, still upright, still natural, normal, but his hair, everything uh, leads off, everything kind of flows away to the sides in a perfect way that... I think you can compare to the, the unleashing of these snake hairs of the Medusa. But if you, leave beyond, if you leave that area beyond what is half the radius, then of course we all know this from spoons, right? It turns upside down. So, and as I say, Leonardo created machines, so we don't know that Leonardo ever used one of these mirrors in, in his work. We certainly have no, no, um, no images by Leonardo in which he's clearly used or much less represents a, a convex or concave mirror. Nevertheless, we know that he designed them, and, he, and so he was familiar with them. They were in use. So what bring, this brings me to my favorite of these, um, of these images in which mirroring is so desperately vital to the story that's being told. And this is a picture in, the, in another Athenaeum, the other Athenaeum, Athenaeum II, we'll call it, in Hartford, in Hartford, Connecticut. And it's one of my favorite pictures in the world, and it is called The Ecstasy of St. Francis. It's the moment when, according to his followers, and St. Bonaventure uh, writes about this fairly early, after the death of St. Francis in 1226, I believe, um, he tells the story of St. Francis, goes up on the hillside, he's toward the end of his life, and he goes with, his, with a fellow monk, you can't see him in this image, and he goes, and then he has, he swoons, and he receives the stigmata. So he receives the wounds of Christ. Now, the point of this, and it's very clear in these early descriptions by St. Bonaventure and in the little flowers of St. Francis, collected stories about St. Francis, contemporary with his own life, it's very clear that what this means is that St. Francis, what the stigmata means, it's a special gift, it's a painful gift, but it means that St. Francis is like Christ. It means that St. Francis mirrors Christ. So 20 years ago, almost to the day, I gave a talk at the Metropolitan about, basically about this picture. And I argued things that people thought were crazy, and they may still be. But one of the things I talked about was, for example, what happens? Now, the way that St. Francis's stigmata is usually represented, for example, it, it appears in the earliest signed and dated work of portable art, post-classical portable art uh, uh, in, Ita in Italy. And this is Bonaventura Berlinghieri's um, St. Francis panel. It's a, again, it's just a tick, T-Y-C-H, tick. 
It's a single image of St. Francis, who had died only nine years before this was painted, and there are several almost like film strip episodes from his life, and, this, and the uppermost episode on the left is the stigmata. And it's exactly as St. Bonaventure describes it. A seraph with six wings uh, comes, appears in the sky to St. Francis, who's uh, praying on the mountaintop with his brother, with his brother, brother. And then in the center of the, winged, of the wings, Jesus crucified appears and sends out these kind of laser beams as is happening. You can't really see them as laser beams here. In Jada, you do. Um, a little later, here's Giotto in the fog. There's a copy in the fog, and the original is in the Louvre. Here's Jesus, surrounded by these six seraphic wings, and he's sending out what look like beams, like curtain rods, like this, into the hands and feet and side of St. Francis. This is the standard way of representing the story. But Caravaggio doesn't represent it this way. He has nothing happening in the sky. It's very early morning, presumably, according to the story. That's when this would be. Light is just beginning. The dawn is just coming up. And then he's being held by this angel. Um, clearly, this is a very painful experience. And so, as I was saying, I argued earlier that the angel, so what happens here, the, all the drama is, is pared down to a, an encounter, a physical encounter between two beings, one the emissary of God and one and one, the mortal St. Francis. Perfect though he may be, he's still completely mortal. But this is the moment in which he tastes what it's like to be the perfect mirror of God. And so um, I, what happens is at the spot where the angel's arm crooks, that is the elbow, I argue that at that spot, the arm of the angel becomes the arm of St. Francis. It's what I call an osmotic limb transfer. You can see why this was never an article. People thought I was crazy. And I still stand by it, even though it may be crazy. Because Caravaggio, by 1596, 97, when this was painted probably for a man named Ottavio Costa, who commissioned so many works from, from Caravaggio, by that time Caravaggio had mastered human anatomy. And so there's no way that arm can bend at that elbow, that angel's arm can bend at the elbow, and still continue down to be the supporting hand on the cord around the waist of the saint. So I think that what happens is the arm of the angel becomes the arm of St. Francis, and so it's the arm of St. Francis, actually the angel's arm, that's actually causing the wound in the right side. Now that's, I think that's still believable, but what's more interesting is we know that Caravaggio likes convex mirrors. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? You think you see a mirror image of yourself. You think and you're right, you do. <laughs> like I did this morning and screamed. But what you, when you look in a mirror, of course what you, and we all know this, every child knows this or learns it fairly soon, well, it is exactly you, but everything is the opposite. So the left hand of the figure in the mirror is your right hand. It's not really you. The, complete, the, the identification is not complete. The mirroring is actually a reversal. So when you look in and you blink your right eye, well, that's the left eye of the figure looking back out at you. So I think what Caravaggio is doing here, beyond joining the body of the emissary of God with the body of the saint to bring about the, 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 the wound to the side and to enter the body of St. Francis, I think he's also turning the figures upside down. And he's, so he's, making the, he's using the convex mirror as a more complete and a more original way of maintaining the absolute identification, the way that Piero does it by flipping over the cartoon so the outlines are exactly, even you could say mathematically, identical. Well, what Caravaggio is doing is he's making the figures confront each other facially 
upside down. And so that the left eye that, that stares back at St. Francis's left eye is the left eye of the angel. And they're just beyond, they're just beyond the, um, the, uh, the halfway of uh, uh, the radius of the, uh, of what would be a convex circle or convex I'm sorry, concave circle or con concave mirror. Caravaggio doesn't do this very often. He prefers to juxtapose youth and age. That's fairly straightforward. So you don't have mirroring, for example, in his another work probably produced for our Ottavia Costa. He has one of his most famous works that comes, kind of helps him to make a career, establish himself in Rome. Uh, this is the Judith beheading Holofernes, and you've got the young and beautiful Judith and the old um, and the old maid, Abra, and she doesn't really like doing this. You can see that she, this is not her favorite thing to do, to cut off a man's head after a date, and yet she has the beauty to seduce him and the physical strength to, to bring this about. The maid would love to do it. You can see the maid is happy about this. She wants to save she's, he's, she's saved her, his, her mistress is saving the Israelites by this, by this murder. But the maid, no one's going to come into her tent and have a date with her. No one's going to, no, it's, it's, she's really old. So there's a narrative point here. The point is that the young and beautiful Judith, who doesn't really want to do this but can, has to do it because her maid, who wants to do it but can't, isn't leaving the room or, or the tent until she's got the head in the bag. It's so clear. So this is, but then it's a simple juxtaposition because even though it's not a mirroring, we can't help, given our long understanding, our long familiarity by this point, people are looking at these works by Caravaggio, have had two or three hundred years of Renaissance art, right? So when you see this, we can't help but consider subliminally the speed of life, the, the, the fleetingness of time between youth and age, and it becomes even more clear in some of his other works. For example, there's just a detail of the juxtaposition. In one of his last works, Caravaggio gives us two heads coming out of the same body. This is Salome with the head of John the Baptist. She too, young and beautiful, she can seduce Herod and make her and make Herod give her this head, which her mother Herodias wants. Herodias wants it, but she can't get it. She's not young and pretty. No one's going to watch her dance. Salome can get it. Salome can get it. She's young and pretty, and it's all kind of strange because she's the stepdaughter of the man who's who's giving her this gift. But you'll see Caravaggio here isn't doing so much mirroring as showing one figure behind the other, but actually two heads coming out of the same body. So it is in a way mirroring, and, and this is fascinating for me, it is in a way mirroring because when you have a figure behind you, then you can mirror. Then your right eye is the same right eye as the person behind you. This is something that Botticelli loved. For example, in his behead, Judith and uh, Abra with the head of Holofernes, look how he gives us a figure of Abra the maid behind the figure of Judith, who's just cut, her, cut the head of, of Holofernes off. And he gives us a kind of mirroring in the pose, and one is behind the other. And so that makes sense. That brings us forward into the story. Does that make any sense that it brings us forward into the story? Another artist who does this later, the 18th century artist Pietro Longhi. He gives us over and over again images of two figures, very similar, not looking at each other in mirrors, not repeating the exact same pose, but nevertheless mirroring each other facially in terms of expression, in terms of costume, in terms of, in this case, voluptuousness. So here are two works by, uh, here, two uh, girls by Longhi. It's called the Polenta Makers, and one girl is holding up the stick with which you stir the polenta, and the other girl is, is pushing or pouring forth the polenta that they've made. It really is, again, a way of handling the challenge to an artist in a static medium to suggest the passage of time. It's two women, but it's also two stages in the making of the polenta. It's also um, 
the one, and they can be read, and, and, and this goes back even to the ancient Greeks, two figures doing something similar or participating in the same thing can be read, logically, as the same figure represented over time, in which sense this is a kind of mirroring. And here's another even sexier idea. Spinning is a metaphor for, for procreating. So here we've got Pietro Longhi's spinners, and we've got this, the woman behind with the, uh, the woman in the front with the, with the floss, and the woman behind with her spindle. She's already got the thread. So two stages in the action. They're both hatted um, women of the same stature with uh, equal decollete, as it's called. Why would I know? So they're equally, they're equally, they're equally available. And I want to just close. I, I've talked way too fast, and I've been garbled. And I'm, I apologize for that. I'm going to blame it on the cold. But, but I want to just close with this. So I was in the Louvre. I was in a show recently in Paris of Fragonard, and and I thought, well, this is a good. I wanted I wanted to find a canova in which the same sort of thing that Caravaggio does with the what I think to be the convex confrontation of St. Francis with the angel who is God's representative, who's, whom he's supposed to be mirroring at that moment. I wanted to find that in a canova. But canova doesn't do the upside-down mirroring thing. But interestingly enough, in Fragonard, this is a beautiful work by Fragonard, 1760-something, and it's called Cephalus and Procris. Uh, Cephalus is a, a young hunter, and he's got a beautiful young wife named Procris, and she's a very jealous wife. And so... Whenever Cephalus goes out hunting, she's nervous, and she gets so nervous one day that she follows him. She doesn't trust him, and he hears something in the woods behind him, and he shoots it, and it's her, and he winds up killing her. It's sad, but here you have, then, you have um, the, the, the flouting of the possibility of absolute identification, of an absolute mirroring of yourself in another, the way God is mirrored absolutely in St. Francis. But only if he's upside down can he be absolutely mirrored. And so it doesn't work in the uh, cephalus and Procris. It should work, you see, but it doesn't because there's a, there's a flaw in the relationship, her distrust and her envy. So they don't do what, what the Caravaggio angel representing God and St. Francis do. They don't confront each other and, and thereby suggest a, a new perfection, a new perfection of identification. Does that make any sense? Here's me outside a mental ward in a convex mirror. <laughs> okay, I talked way too fast. I was a little bit, but anyway, so it's the first time I've done this stuff, so. Anyway, any questions? <laughs> no, that's it. That's all I had to say. I, I, I think it was pretty foggy in parts, and I, I distinctly didn't take, I didn't take any antihistamines because I didn't want to be a different person giving this talk, but I'm, unfortunately, I'm the same person who gave this talk. Thank you so much. That's, that is